0: Coming to the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 23. We will finish up, Lord willing, next week. And uh, we'll, have a, we'll have a week off for Labor Day. And then we're starting, remember, our series in the fall, uh, September 10th, we're going to start the basics series. And, and the elders have asked that you prioritize that series. We've, we've, we've said we think that these are basics, these things that everybody needs. To, to understand as a part of the Christian life and so we're asking you if you would this, this fall kind of September 10th going forward that you would just say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be here, I'm going to hear these basics so that you can, can apply some of these things. We can apply them together to our lives, okay? So that's coming up starting on September uh, the 10th, all right? So uh, let's turn now to, to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Okay, so, if you get serious about studying the Bible, uh, you're going to find, as with anything else, there's much more there than you thought. Uh, I'm going I'm to take you into something today at the beginning. It matters to the passage that we're studying, but, but maybe you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about Bible translation, all right? Um, so, hopefully most of you know that the Bible was not written down in English, okay? So, Um, Unless you grew up in a a King James-only environment, uh, which that's a whole other discussion, um, you probably know that the Old Testament was written down in Hebrew, almost entirely in Hebrew. There's a section of Daniel that's written in in Aramaic, and the New Testament is written down in Greek. Um, and, And let me say this at the outset. I think we should be very thankful for our English translations. Okay, I I, I am very thankful that, that godly men, scholarly men have put the time in to get our, our English translations. I read the, the New American Standard Bible uh, every morning. That's a it's a very wooden translation of the Bible. It's a very it's much more literal, it's not as smooth. Um, most of you these days probably read the English Standard Version. That's what we have in the pews. It's a more recent um, translation. It, it came about a- around 2001, and it was intended to have a better flow than the sort of, sort of woodenly literal New American Standard. Some of you may have been raised on the New International Version, all right, which is, is called a, a dynamic equivalent translation so they take things that are hard to understand and they they kind of word them in a way that makes them easier to understand which pertaining to our what we're going to talk about they're they're making interpretive choices there all right they're making choices to interpret the text which is fine some of you may have been raised on the King James Version it's beautiful uh, but but becoming a bit archaic today and again I assure you all of these translations can be trusted Um, Something else that may be obvious, but it's important to know, is that the existing copies that we have of the Hebrew and the Greek, they're just that. They are copies. So we refer to the originals, the original, you know, the original copy of Jeremiah. We would call that the autograph. We don't have that. We don't have Paul's letter to the Colossians, okay? Uh, but in the New Testament, what we do have are tens of thousands of uh, fragments and even manuscripts, some of which date all the way back to the first century, okay? So even though we don't have the, the letter of, to the Colossians or, or, or the Gospel of Mark, we have, um, we have copies of those things and fragments of those things that go to just a few years after the Apostles would have written them down. You can go to the Ryland Library in Manchester, England, and you can see papyrus P52. It's called the the St. John's Fragment. It's a fragment of the copy of John. It's John 18, uh, 31 through 33, that dates to between 125 and 175 AD, okay? So you can go there, and you can see a fragment of the scripture that dates to possibly within 50 years of when John wrote that down. You can go, if you're ever in London, I highly recommend that you go to the, the British Library. They used to have all of this together in the British Museum. Now they have it in the British Library. And, and so you can see there, you know, handwritten notes from like the Beatles. You can see handwritten manuscripts from the, the Bronte sisters. But right there alongside all of that, there are some of these fragments of the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark that date to within a hundred years of them being written, all right? So, the New Testament, we have lots of manuscripts that are very early, but the Old Testament, those copies are harder to come by. And part of the reason for that is because the, the Jewish people, the scribes, took it so seriously that they were handling the Word of God that sometimes when they copied a new manuscript, they would destroy the old one because they, they were constantly trying to have new copies to, to, to honor it. So for for almost a 1,000 years, the oldest copy that we had of the Old Testament, the old, oldest full text, was it's called the Masoretic Text, and it dates to about 1,000 A.D. Um, so, so it was put together by the Masoretes, that's really old, 1,000 years ago is really old, but obviously compared to some of these, when some of these documents would have been written, it's not it's not as old as we wish it was, and so some who were trying to cast doubt on our understanding of those things would say, well, how do we really know that that was what was written down in the originals, and we've talked in here before about the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were discovered in the middle of the last century, and, and they, they were written almost a thousand years earlier than the Masoretic text, and they, they confirmed for us that what we have in our Old Testament scriptures is very consistent with what existed uh, 2,000 years ago. All right, so you may be very content to read your, your ESV Bible, and I, I am happy for you to, to do that, okay, but you should also be thankful that we still have men who study these manuscripts, and we're, we're pouring over, there are men who are pouring over these ancient manuscripts all the time, I would say, by the way, if you're a young person and you're, you're really bright, um, you know, we still need people who are gonna learn Greek and Hebrew and, and who are gonna study these things. Even though we've got great programs and word programs that we can use, we still need people who are gonna get to the bottom of this because, um, okay, so when we say we believe that the Bible is inerrant, sometimes you'll see a statement that says, we believe it's inerrant in the original text. Okay, so we believe that God gave us an, an, an inerrant scripture in the original text, um, and so we want to get as close to that original text as we possibly can, so if there's any error in that text, it's because some copyist, it's human error, it's not, it's not because the original text, so we'll get next week actually in the final um, portion. Uh, there's a portion in, in chapter 24 where it says that um, 70,000 people died. and that, So that's a, there's a textual discussion there. Is it 70,000? Is it 7,000? How many people actually died? It doesn't affect our understanding of any important doctrine, but there are still men who are working to get to the bottom of those things, all right? So all that matters, especially for our text today. All right? And then let me tell you one more thing about translation, and then you don't have to hear about this again for a while. Um, So the Hebrew language was written in only consonants until the 9th or 10th century A.D. All right? So the Masoretes added what were called vowel pointings to help us understand the vowels of the Hebrew. Um, and, And so that means that the vowels don't possess the same authority as the consonants. Okay, so I have a screen. I have a a a. a um, okay, so this is this is what the Hebrew might look like. All right, and so if you're a, if you're translating the Hebrew and you're trying to, you've got you've got to use context. Okay, um, so I mean that could say, gas want to bid right? Like bid, BD could be bad, it could be bud, it could be bad, it could be bod, um, it could be, is that all of them? I think that's all of them, right? So we have to determine with the context, you know, Gus could be Gus or gas, went could be went, um, WNT could be went or want, okay? So when you, when you approach this as a Bible translator, you're trying to understand and, and remember, the vowel the vowel pointings came later, and, and because you know me, and you you know English, most of you can just look at that, right? And you can tell what it says. But a thousand years later, when we don't know the context, and we may not know the Hebrew as well, we have to do some work to find out what it actually says there. Okay, so we figure that out from context. And so a big part of us trying to understand what that original text says is making those interpretive choices. So what does all of this have to do with 2 Samuel 23? And and make sure you've turned there. Um, This is significant because that Masoretic text is a post-Christian version of the Old Testament. So it's after Christ. Okay, so I am not suggesting that there was any kind of conspiracy among the rabbis to get messianic prophecy out of the Old Testament. I am suggesting that it's entirely possible that when a choice had to be made with one of these words that they would have chosen the less messianic reading rather than the more messianic reading. Because they're sort of like just inherently wanting to not have that text be talking about Jesus, okay? It doesn't mean that they're trying to get it out of there. It just means when they're making choices, they're going to lean towards something that might, that might suggest that that passage is speaking of Jesus. Okay, so let me give you a translation of 2 Samuel, or we'll just read, I'll just read what we have here in the text. 2 Samuel 23, 1, now these are the last words of David the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. All right, let me tell you what a difference that just, okay, in the same way that GS could be gus or gas, or bed could be bad, bid, bud, or, or bod, okay? Just one change in vowel, okay? Changes it to this. So just so read along in your English text, and let me let me just make that one change in vowel. So these are the last words of David, the declaration of David, son of Jesse, the declaration of the man raised regarding the one anointed by the God of Jacob and the delightful one of the songs of Israel. Alright? Now here's here's all I'm saying. And I know some of you are probably like, What are you doing here, Cleveland? This is all I'm saying, okay? What I'm saying here is that tiny adjustment in vowel pointing, which was added a thousand years later, changes the meaning of this text from being a statement about King David to it being a statement by King David about the Messiah, okay? And, and nobody's playing fast and loose with the text here. We're talking about reasonable interpretive choices, it doesn't change any important doctrine, but it does understand how we understand this text, okay? So this text contains David's last words, and the question that we're asking here is, is David writing his last words about himself, or is he writing his last words about the Messiah? And and I want to suggest to you this morning, carefully, that I believe that David is writing these last words about the Messiah, because I think that David's favorite subject was the Messiah, and I think that David was far more likely to want to talk about him in his very last words than he was to talk about himself. Okay? All right, so let's, let's work our way through the text. Let me read the whole text, and then we're, we'll, we'll move quickly through the text this morning. By the way, we're only going to do verses one through seven, uh, and, and the rest of the chapter is a list of David's mighty men. I'll let you guys read that on your own, but we're, we're not going to preach that section of Scripture this time. All right, so chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear and they are utterly consumed with fire. Let me pray and then we'll we'll approach this 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 scripture. Father, we thank you for this scripture. Father, we thank you that that you so clearly as is stated in this text that you gave it to David to speak to us so many thousands of years ago, and Father, I pray that you would give us understanding, I pray that you would give us care, I pray that you would help us to to take these words very seriously, and to understand them, and to live according to them, and we know that that will be very merciful to to us if you do that, and we thank you that you've given us these words, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, all right, so uh, number one, David's favorite subject. David's favorite subject, it says, now these are the last words of David, this does not mean that he spoke these words and then he died. It didn't happen like that, okay? It, 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 David's death is not recorded until 1 Kings 2, um, and we know that he said other things after he said this, all right? So this is David's last testimony, we have this from Moses, we have this from Jacob, we have this from Isaac, okay? So this is sort of a like, you know, what do you want on your tombstone? not, you know, not pizza, your actual tombstone. What do you want uh, it to say? And, and so this is David saying, this, th- this, is, this is what I want you to remember when I'm gone, all right? And it says the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, and then it says the oracle of the man raised up, and we'll stop there, all right? So I like the word oracle. Uh, it means prophetic utterance, David here is claiming to be a prophet, all right? David is a very unique man in the scripture. Ordinarily, the kings are separate from the priests and separate from the prophets. David, there's some overlap in David, and David is claiming here that he has actually received these words from the Lord, all right? By the way, this is one of the reasons why I am in favor of making that little change that we talked about here, because David is saying, I've got this prophetic oracle. And I just don't think that David would have this prophetic oracle about himself. He is writing a prophecy about the Messiah. Related to that, David's description of himself is very, very humble. So he says, I was the son of Jesse, I'm not the son of Saul. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be the king. I was a kid. I was out in the field. I was a shepherd. My dad didn't even think that I should come and talk to Samuel when Samuel came to anoint the king. I was the son of Jesse. You were son of who? And David's like, exactly, exactly. I was a nobody, and it says, and God raised me up. I am in the position that I'm in because God put me there. It was given to me by God. Okay, and so then this is this is where we're going to make our slight change. Okay, so so the ESV reads the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and and we're gonna we're gonna read it this morning. The oracle of the man concerning the anointed one of the God of Jacob. All right. So if, if you read it like that, then David is saying. I'm telling you about that thing that I loved to talk about. I am the sweet psalmist of Israel, and the psalms that I wrote down, I loved to talk about the Messiah. David wants us to remember the Messiah more than he wants us to remember David. And I, I, I do believe that this passage, when, understand, when understood this way, gives us a key to better understanding the Psalms, especially the Messianic Psalms, all right? You can find, okay, this this may shock you, but there are a lot of people in evangelicalism, there are a lot of pastors, there are a lot of writers who want to tell you that the Bible doesn't have that many uh, the, the Old Testament doesn't have that many messianic prophecies, prophecies. And one thing they'll say in particular is the Psalms don't really talk about Messiah that much. It's David talking about himself. It's, it's David talking about other kings who lived at the time. Here's a, here's a quote from a New Testament scholar. There are probably no messianic prophecies in the Psalms, okay? David himself would beg to differ, and he says, I am prophesying about the Messiah and it's my favorite subject to, to talk about, All right, So Psalm 16. So an example of a messianic psalm would be Psalm 16. Peter quotes Psalm 16 in Acts 2. So in verse 10 of chapter 16, David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let the Holy One, let your Holy One, see corruption, okay? And so the deniers would say, well, David's just talking about himself, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That he's just trusting in his own resurrection. But Peter picks up on that statement in Acts 2.31, and after quoting Psalm 16, Peter says, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Okay? So again, the deniers would say, well, David didn't know what he was talking about. We would say that David absolutely knew what he was talking about. This was his favorite subject. Peter tells us that David foresaw the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I would say when you read the Psalms, go ahead and assume that David is speaking about the Messiah because he tells us to assume that. Secondly, we see David's prophetic role in verses 2 and 3. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Okay, this is actually a really great statement on inspiration. So we talk about the inspiration of Scripture. When we say the inspiration of Scripture, we mean that God divinely influenced human authors of Scripture in such a way that they wrote the very Word of God. When we talk about inspiration, we, say, we, we often say it was God-breathed. Well, what was that like? How did that go? Well, David tells us. In David's case, the Lord spoke to him, and he gives us this sort of like fourfold description about divine inspiration, and he says, look, I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. The God of Israel, the rock of my salvation, he's the one who gave this to me. He put this on my tongue, And you should listen to it. This is coming from God. David wants us to be clear. These aren't my words, these are God's words. This morning, as we look at this text, we can know that this is the word of God. And that's huge. Here's what God said to David. And so I would say if you're ever in a discussion about inspiration, if you're ever talking to somebody who doubts the inspiration of Scripture, take them to this passage and and show them. Well, David says, the Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. There it is, right there. So what does God have to say through David? Number three, David's righteous king. Verses three and four. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Maybe you feel like we talk about Jesus and Jesus' kingdom all the time in here. Well, just so you can know, David did too. It was his favorite subject, and it should be our favorite subject. We gather here week after week on Sunday mornings to worship Christ. There's a lot of things that we do when we gather together, but that's our primary purpose. When, when we are among those, Paul describes the Thessalonians as those who turned from idols to worship the living and true God, okay? And so, like David, we are, we are so excited to talk and speak and, and write uh, about that Messiah. So, we, we, you know, we talked last week about singing those songs joyfully. We sing these songs about our Messiah joyfully because it, it brings us joy to speak of him, So he says, when one rules justly over men, there's going to be a king who rules justly. Now, we have some good friends who would say to us that Jesus is reigning as much as he's going to reign right now, and that his kingdom has come, and that he reigns today in the hearts of those who love him, and that we shouldn't look forward to any manifestation of, of this kingdom. And yet David speaks of a time here when one will rule justly over men. There is one who is coming who will rule justly over mankind, and that has not happened yet. It's certainly not happening right now. Now, you could look around at what we see today, and you could be justified in saying, well, that could never possibly happen. Mankind is too wicked. There's no way that we could justly rule over each other and yet David says it is it's going to happen there's going to be a king who will rule justly and I believe the Bible is clear one day the Messiah Jesus will return and he will rule the nations of this earth and all the foolishness that we see in government today will be dealt with secondly he will rule with the fear of the Lord can you imagine what that would be like can you even imagine what it will be like to live under a government, under a king, who rules in the fear of the Lord. We will have a king who honors God the Father with every impulse of his heart. I I, I quote Isaiah nine to you often. I'm gonna read it again, nine, six, two, seven. This is turning into a Christmas sermon. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This should not be an obscure Old Testament passage to us. These are passages that should be our hope the one who rules justly in the fear of the Lord. We know who that is. It's Jesus Christ. We're going to gather together. We're going to gather together tonight at at 5 o'clock, and I hope you'll consider joining, because we're going to look at the Minor Prophets, and you guys talk about obscure books of the Bible and books of the Bible that people think have no relevance to their lives. And let me tell you, the Minor Prophets, they are filled with God's revelation about this Messiah's reign on earth and many many christians are very confused about the bible's promises concerning this messiah and it's because they haven't taken time to read what god has given us you know when jesus asks his disciples when he gives them that graduate school level test and he says who do you say that i am peter says to him you are the christ the son of the living god And Jesus rejoices because he says a miracle has taken place in your heart. Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus gets real excited because Peter believes he is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the one predicted by David in 2 Samuel 23 and Isaiah and all the prophets. He is the Savior of mankind, but he is the Christ. He is the king. He is this one who is coming to rule justly. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross and rose from the dead and ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, do you believe that he is the Messiah, the one promised by David and the prophets? If you believe that, then God has done a work in your heart just like he did in the heart of Peter 2,000 years ago. Number three, I don't know, I've lost my numbers. Don't ignore that. There will be a new day dawning in this world. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Y'all, I've made it pretty clear. I'm a morning person. I love the mornings. Man, a, a new day is a fresh start. God's mercies are new every morning. I know some of you like to experience God's mercies later than some of us, but there's nothing like a new day. Yesterday may have been a disaster, but this morning we get to get up and we get to start again. When Messiah comes, it will be like a new day dawning. It will be like the sun coming up over the earth. It will be that glorious light appearing over the ocean that same light that even those who are hardened in unbelief have to say that's pretty majestic paul describes those thessalonians he also describes them as those who wait for the sun for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead we are waiting for that sunrise we are waiting for it to come and i'm telling y'all i, y'all, I just i'm going to wheel this out at christmas in a, in a few years Um, because there's so many songs that we sing at Christmas. You know, we we sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem contains the line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Hark the herald angels sing, hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. So these are beautiful promises. These are fantastic promises. Jesus' return will be like the sun coming up over the ocean. And then finally, David's messianic hope. All right, so verse 5 begins with a question, for does not my house stand so with God? All right, so one more thing about Bible translation, Uh, there's no punctuation okay, so there are markers in the Hebrew that will tell us if something is a question, and that marker is not here, okay, so even in, in, in Bible translation, again, you have to figure it out by the context, okay, so I, I, I'm, I think That since verse 1 is understood the way that I mentioned it before, that it's about David, I I think that what has happened here is the translators have to make this a question. Otherwise, it makes no sense. They have David saying, is it not so with my house? Okay, I want to suggest to you that if verse 2 is about the Messiah, then verse 5 is a statement that makes complete sense. David is saying, it is not so with my house. And by the way, the, the New Ching King James Version translates this, this not as a question, as a statement. Although my house is not so with God. No question mark, okay? So David is saying, I'm not this guy. This is not true of me. And, and, and brothers and sisters, if you've gotten to this point with me in 2 Samuel, you know David ain't the guy. David's house is not the guy. I mean, just Amnon and uh, uh, Absalom and and Solomon, these are not the guys. David is saying, I'm not that guy, but I am really excited to see him. I'm really decided. Don't think my dynasty is the answer to God's covenant. There's one who's coming who will far exceed what I've been able to do in this life. And so God had made this everlasting covenant with David. He's going to secure David's salvation. He's going to bring to fruition his desire. What's David's desire? David wants to see Messiah. By the way, I think this is David by faith saying, I'm going to see Messiah. I think this is David saying, I'm going to be raised from the dead and I'm going to see Messiah. And then he says, but worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away for they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of the spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. David knows what it's like to deal with worthless men. David knows what it's like to have enemies. We've seen this over and over again, and David says, ultimately, this Messiah, he's going to come, and he's going to defeat his enemies. Those who refuse Christ, those who refuse to believe, they are going to have no place in his righteous kingdoms, kingdom. So Jesus instructs us to love our enemies. Like we know on this side of the cross, Jesus has said, love your enemies and pray for them. It is not for us to reap reap vengeance on another person. Vengeance belongs to Jesus Christ. But When that new day dawns, it will indeed be too late for those who have lived in rebellion to God. You remember the the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, as we say today? The enemy was uh, uh, sown weeds among the wheat, and the farmer tells his servants, don't don't go out and try to pull up the weeds right now, because you might harm the wheat. Just wait until the harvest. And when the harvest comes, Matthew 13, verse 41 says, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace, in that place there will, be no more, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Contemporary ears don't like to talk about hell. We don't like to talk about a fiery furnace and the gnashing of teeth. But Jesus' words weren't new. David, the prophet of God, foretold a time when the enemies of God would be consumed with fire. A thousand years before Jesus, David, the king, says something very, very similar to his grandson. So we're going to stop there today. Like I said, we're going to skip over 2nd Samuel chapter 23. We will pick up next week with 2nd Samuel chapter 24. You can read up through those things yourself. Guys, David I believe loved the Messiah. He was like, "On my dying in my dying words, on my tombstone, what do I want written down? What do I want preserved in this book for everybody to know?" I want you to know that I long for the day of Messiah. And we know who that Messiah is. We know so much more than David know, knew. We have so much more revelation. And that should be our song as well. Our song should be We are excited to talk about Jesus the Christ. We are excited for him to come and rule, we are excited for his righteous reign. We know that one day our enemies will be defeated. And and if I can just leave you with a thought today, it is to think of that that new day that is going to come. When the sun rises and Jesus is Lord, everything is going to change. That is our hope. That was David's hope. Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we're going to testify to that now as we take the lord's table together uh, we we do this in remembrance of him uh, testifying to the fact that he is going to come again so if you know jesus if you know this messiah if you believe the things that we've talked about you are welcome to partake with us this morning in this this little meal if you don't know him i would ask you just to refrain not that we're trying to leave you out Um, but that we would love to tell you more so that you can take another time in understanding. So um, our brothers and sisters are going to hand out the, the bread and the cup right now, and just hang on to those, and I'll come back and read a passage, and then we will partake together in just a minute.